All right. Welcome back to the Solar Surge podcast. Uh, if you're new to the Solar Surge podcast, on this program, we meet with all the top CEOs and thought leaders in the solar plus storage space. And today I have another special guest for you. Andy Sendy is joining us all the way from Adelaide, Australia. Uh, and if you don't know Andy, chances are you've seen his face uh, if you're on YouTube or if you're on the web in the solar space. Uh, Andy is the owner and the man behind Solar Reviews and Solar Estimate. They have some of the best product reviews, uh, both in video format, blog format. So chances are if you're online looking and researching solar, you've come across one of their media assets before. And Andy's going to be joining us today to talk all about his business and the formula for success that he's found so, uh, Andy, thank you for joining us this morning, and uh, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you, Joe. Pleasure, pleasure to be here, and thanks for having me, mate. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm honored to, be, to really be chatting with you because when I started in solar, you know, some of the first articles and information that I ever came across were from your website, oh. uh, reviewing various solar panels. And, of course, this was back, you know, eight, nine-plus mm. years ago. Yeah. Uh, reviewing different solar panels and things. So it's really nice to to connect with you. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm really just interested to get your take. You know, you've been doing this for longer than a lot of folks. And uh, I understand that you, you, you started your career as a corporate lawyer, but then you decided to get into the solar industry when things were really, really just getting started in Australia. Can you ex explain a little bit why? Why did you want to get into the renewable space? Yeah. And why have you committed to it for so long? Yeah, um, I guess, uh, like... Um I had a software company, so I, I worked as a corporate lawyer for a couple of the big corporate law firms in Australia for a couple of years and really decided that wasn't for me pretty quickly. Um, I then ran a software company for about seven years from 2009 to 2007. I sold that to a bigger Australian software company and that still operates today. But I didn't make sort of retirement money out of it, but I made enough that it didn't really matter how much I earned for a couple of years. And um, I guess I'd come from a family that was on the land. Um, and so we, you know, we always had a sort of an attachment to nature and the environment. And I, and back then solar was so expensive. Like my first panels I bought, I think I paid six bucks a watt wholesale just for the panels. And that's just like in half a container volume. Like, um, so solar, so when I sold the software company, I had enough money that I didn't have to worry if I earned money for a year or two. And I thought, well, I'll go and do something I like, which is solar for a year or two, and then I'll go get a real job because solar's never going to be viable. It's just way too expensive. Um, so I, I did that. And then, of course, you know, um, you know, the solar industry owes a lot to the German government because it was initially the German government, you know, in the early 2000s that put, you know, massive solar subsidies in place and they allowed the solar panel manufacturing industry to go from a sort of almost a, like a handcrafted sort of small batch sort of thing to a, a, you know, a large volume industry. And so they started to get economies of scale and then um, the Chinese picked this up um, and really sort of started to, you know, drive that scale when the when Germany in the early 2010s, you know, Germany subsidies pulled back, um, but subsidies started in other places around the world. Um, Australia, my home country, being um, a big place, we were probably the next 
major economy. There was also Spain for a while that went pretty hard. Um, this is sort of before solar was really going in America. Um, and so the, the cost came down and it became um, sort of somewhat, you know, more viable to offer solar. Um, and so, you know, I did that, and but that business, instead of just being something I did for a couple of years before I went back and got a real job, it, it became something that um, was a viable business. Um, and that business grew and that, I haven't run that company now for, that company that I started back then was called Solar Wholesalers. So that's now the biggest solar installer, residential solar installer um, in our part of the world. Um, I haven't run that now for, well, I guess it'd be 10 years now. Um, the boys that started working with me when I started that company now run it. So James and Clifford and Sam and Callan um, <coughs> run that company now. Um, and But it's still lovely though. Like solar is one of the, the things when you sell solar to people like I live my farm's in a place called the Adelaide Hills and you know if I come across somebody that I sold solar to back in 2010 they're like your best friend like they they love it they they really love their solar systems and so and to the boys credit they've just grown that business you know with good customer service like um you know, a year or so ago, I was I was talking to somebody, then we'd just done a job, but I'd done another job for them like 10 years ago, and we'd just done a job for their mother's house, and they're saying that, the you know, when their mum came home with the shop and the boys got off the roof and carried her shopping in for her, and, you know, when you hear stuff like that, it makes you, it makes you very proud of the boys, so, um, so that's how... I sort of came to be in solar and my temporary stint in it for a year or two till I got a real job turned into a, a whole new career. And um, by about, I guess there's two sort of things to note about that, that story is that um, first of all, in very early on, um, my, a, a guy called Finn Peacock uh, rang me up and he said, you know, look, I'm starting a website to generate some leads for solar. If I give them to you for a month, will you call them and then just tell me if the, if it's going to be a viable thing and worthwhile? And this was, mate, yeah, so maybe 2008, 2009, something like that. So I rung them. I didn't sell any jobs. But back then, there was a lot of margin in a solar job because they were so expensive. So I didn't really expect to sell a lot. But they were clearly genuine leads. So I decided that I'd buy Finn's leads. And to this day, my install company in Australia still buys every single one of Finn's leads. Um, and to be honest, that's a big reason why we've become, the, you know, the company in Australia has become the number one installer. We just consistently, you know, buy leads, process them and do a good job. When we when we win a job, we just do a good job with customer service. So, um, and it's really, that's, there's no other trick to that. Um, but, by about 2012, I could see that the boys that were working for me, they weren't, you know, I was a corporate lawyer by background. They were natively journeymen by background. So they were, in many ways, in my view, better suited to running an install company. And so I really felt that if I just stayed there, I'd just be in their way. I'd actually just be an impediment to their growth rather than any sort of advantage to it. And so um, I thought I'd just jump out and leave and leave the boys with it. And they, 
you know, they didn't sink, they swum really well. So um, first of all, I went and bought some land in the south of Japan and started building a solar power station. At the time, the Japanese government had a 42 yen um, per kilowatt hour feed-in tariff when it was unlimited. It was one of the only ones in the world where you could get that sort of rate. 42 yen, I think, works out to about 26 cents us but that you know that was 10 years ago the exchange rates may be way different now i'm not sure but um yeah we um you know we did that and then i i realized doing business in the south of japan so i bought some land at a place called awajishima island off the south of japan um and you know that was a very different world and i worked out it was going to be very very difficult for me to do business in japan um, and not speaking Japanese. And so I, I sold that and then we really started Solar Reviews. And the reason I, I, I sort of did was twofold. One is I thought in solar, everybody can basically buy equipment and everyone can hire labour at roughly the same price. Now, if you're bigger, you might get one cent a watt or two cent a watt, you know, purchasing advantage off your panels. And like, you know, that's great you know, or, you know, a couple of cents a watt on your inverters or something on your racking and things like that. But really, when it comes down to it, basically everybody can buy equipment at the same price and everybody can hire labour at roughly the same rate. So the only way you can get a competitive strategic advantage in solo, in my view, and this was my view way back then, um, was to be better at acquiring new work at a lower cost of acquisition so that you could have a constant throughput of work through your infrastructure, through your fixed costs, your infrastructure, your, your shed, your office, um, you know, your trucks. You know, if you could keep those busy, um, and we've always had a focus on getting jobs finished in a day um, so that if you could get a crew, you know, three or four days a week finishing a job, in a day such that they can start a new one the next morning rather than having to go back. Um, you know, you, you could sort of, that's the way to do really well. But I didn't want to compete with my friend Finn Peacock from solarquotes.com.au because really it, it was buying Finn's leads that gave me my, you know, my first taste of success, I guess. So, um, and we, we'd become friends. And we are to this day, like we share insights about lead generation and what Google are doing to us and Facebook and doing to us and, you know, all the time. So, um, so that's really why I came to America, just because I didn't want to compete with a friend of mine. Like I just, you know, there's some things you will do and some things you won't do to make money and that's just one thing I wouldn't do. So, um, you know, I came to America. Um, people pass around information the fraud was just rife. Like people were just running around selling databases of old leads that have been generated years ago, or even just databases of homeowners data they bought as leads. It was just crazy. Um, I feel like the industry settled down now. Like most of the blatant fraudsters, you know, back 2014, 15, 16, because it was just such a, gold rush the solar industry there was so much corporate money going into it there were big companies like Vivint and solar city that just wanted to charge really hard um you know that all that grew up in that time but it was very unsustainable and a lot of it you know was you know fairly poor quality tech 
tactics. And I'd only ever known Finn's leads, which were, if you ever go to the website solarquotes.com.au and fill out Finn's lead form, you know, you've got to be pretty sure you want solar to fill it out because it's a long form. Um, so the quality of what I was getting there, you know, it was just nothing like what was in America. And so we just decided, I guess, to take an approach where, um, you know, we would just do it, I guess, the way Finn did it largely. Like, um, so, you know, and as I said to you, Joe, before when we chatted offline, you know, you know there's nothing really super special we did to become the largest sort of generator of leads. We just didn't cheat. Um, there probably are a few things like little technical things we do that were important. Like, um, I think we were the first and we may still be the only one, I'm not sure, to when somebody fills out our lead gen form, we send them a pin code to their phone and they have to put that in back into our website to proceed. Um, otherwise we don't sell that as a lead, um, unless we do an, a further layer of validation and actually call them and get hold of them and speak to them um the other thing i think we another thing i think we do um we built a really good estimator so um on either solar estimate or solar reviews if you go to the solar calculator there the estimate we give people is actually really accurate like if you often get an estimate from aurora in fact if you look at the reviews for our website you'll see that a lot of the people say you know, the estimate we got off Solar Estimate or Solar Reviews was very similar than the estimate that we ultimately got from contractors that um, quoted to do our job. So um, the other the other big thing I think was, I think we're the only major lead generation company in America that does this even to this day, is we give people the choice of how many leads, how many quotes they want. So if they only want one quote, they can get one quote. You know, that's it. And they'll only get one call from one person. Um, and that's probably the last, brings me the last major thing I think we do, which is a little, which is fundamentally different to the rest of the lead generation industry is we don't sell our unsold leads. So last year, I think we generated 900,000 solar leads of which about 700,000 was with phone numbers. Cause some people elect, they don't want to put their phone number in and we don't sell those as leads because um, they're not really what the, the industry calls a lead. Um, but we only sold about half of those leads. So I think it was either 48 or 52% of the leads we sold, or I can't remember which way around it is, but it's about half. The rest fail QA and they don't get sold at all. So um, <clears throat> that, you know, and those, so those other three or 400,000 people, we've never sold their details to anybody. So we don't. We've, I guess, chosen to forego, I don't know what it might be, 5 or $10 million a year in revenue now, um, not to share people's data. So the way the, the general lead industry works in America is terrible. Like, it's just, you have these affiliate networks um, and they basically generate a few of their own leads, but they generate most of their leads from affiliates. So they'll buy leads in. If you get a big affiliate network, and I don't want to, mention the bigger home services affiliate networks but most of us probably know who they are and they'll buy leads in from hundreds of different sources 
generated on hundreds of different websites, they've got no idea what quality or what process or what's being said to those consumers. And then what they'll do is they'll basically sell that lead off to any direct service providers they have, but they'll also sell it off to every other affiliate network they can for a few bucks a pop. Um, but that that's right. what means... That's what leads to this robocall epidemic that's going on at the moment, which is just unsustainable and crazy. And so, um, you know, there's actually, I guess, quite a scary sort of proposal in front of the FCC at the moment to effectively ban lead generation. Um, And to be honest, it's the industry's fault. They've just had no regard for the privacy and security of people's data. And so I, I think there's things that could be done short of banning lead generation. So effectively what they're looking to do is ban, um, oh, sorry, this is, Joe, I, I guess a, a step aside, but basically in the lead generation business, you need to get a TCPA opt-in to be able to contact somebody's number because nearly all numbers are on the do not federal do not call um, list. So it's illegal to call them without a valid TCPA opt-in. What they're trying to do, the FCC proposal is seeking, is considering, is banning a single TCPA opt-in from being used for to have multiple people contact a consumer. So effectively, if that was to pass, then that would effectively it would be banning lead generation. Uh, I don't think that'll happen because lead generation is too important to the American economy, but the industry really has itself to blame for that. Because it's, you know, most people in the lead generation industry will sell somebody's data off to a different affiliate network or a different body for like literally a dollar, like, and they don't care who it goes to. And that's where you get people called hundreds of times and by dozens of people. And so really we've just stayed, I've never been to LeedsCon, the big Leeds conference that happens twice a year in America. I've never been. I've never had any interaction with the rest of the American lead industry. Um, and to be honest, I don't intend to. Um, I like the way we do it. And everybody sort of, I think, takes the view that, well, you couldn't be a, a viable business doing it the way we do it. We wouldn't make enough money. But it seems like we are because we, from what our clients tell us, we have like 10 times the volume in solar than anybody else does. And if you look in the Google AdWords auction results, um, you know, we have probably five times, we buy five times more Google AdWords traffic than anybody else does in solar. So I think it can be a viable lead generation company doing the right thing. Um, well, I think there's I think there's a big difference, too, in, in your, your philosophy in generating leads. You see, in the U.S., what I've observed is that, especially in the past five to eight years, uh, the solar industry is, has been a free-for-all. It's like a gold rush. You've got all these salespeople that have come in from other industries. The, the word is out. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of cash to be earned. There's a lot of commission to be earned. And so they're doing anything and everything they can do to, to boost sales volume. Um, in, including, in many cases, boosting leads. But what I've actually noticed in the last year or two is that many of the people that came into the solar industry because they were they were attracted by the large commission potential of selling solar, many of these salespeople have transitioned, instead of selling solar to homeowners, they've transitioned to selling leads to other solar salespeople because they think that that's more lucrative 
The problem, as you've mentioned, is that many of these leads are of very poor quality. And, uh, and I know because I've tried, I've tried probably a dozen different lead generation companies. And one of the most frustrating things as a solar installer or as a solar salesperson, one of the most frustrating things is calling a lead or, or worse yet, going to visit a lead at a booked appointment. And the person has no idea what they've opted into. They have no idea how you got their information. And they, they want you to leave. You know, and, and there's, there's tons of that out there, tons and tons of that out there. One of the things we've done is education. Um, and so, look, what we do, our leads cost a lot more, and we run across this every time. It says, oh, so-and-so, your leads are 100 bucks, say, and uh, this other company says they can give me leads for 25 bucks. There's no way you can get a volume of leads at 25 bucks. The bottom line is simply this, and... The big four platforms, which are really two companies, Meta and, and Alphabet. So there's Google and YouTube, which is Alphabet, and there's Meta, which is Facebook and Instagram. Those four platforms largely control the consumers that are out there that might buy us a, a product or a service. So it doesn't matter if it's solar or roofing or whatever. Those four platforms control it, and they largely are monopolies. And they charge monopoly rent for their traffic. And so my cost per click with Google has gone up 90% in the last 12 months. Even though interest rates have gone up and we're in a far more difficult operating environment, Google is largely a monopoly. Um, and, it, and it will push up the price. I expect it will continue to push up the price of its monopoly traffic. And the reason our leads are more expensive is simply because we buy that we're the, by far the biggest buyer of that high intent traffic. So what a lot of these low end people are doing is they're trying to use these affiliate networks where somebody ticked a box when they're signing up for insurance or when they're signing up to get their dog washed that said, would you like a solar quote and didn't even notice. And that's what you're talking about. You end up at somebody's house and they don't even know why you're there. They've got no, no interest in solar at all. Whereas we buy... You know, Google AdWords is the most high intent traffic because somebody's actually, they've initiated themselves a search. They've gone to Google and they've typed in how much do solar panels cost or who's the best solar company near me or whatever. That's the traffic we buy. So it's them, but unfortunately, we have to pay monopoly rent to the monopolist, which is Alphabet and Meta. Um, and the, we, you know, we still have, by other people's standards, a lot of organic leads, but by far the majority of them are paid paid leads. We're simply buying, you know, and often I say this to a client, all we do is we just buy Google and Facebook and Insta and YouTube traffic at more efficiently than you do because we've got a department. And I don't know how much experience, Joe, you've had with working with those platforms, but each of those platforms are becoming complex. Like the bidding options, there's no way a small guy can make money in adwords now there's no way like you have to have your systems linked you have to actually have your software connected to the back end to be able to use google's best bidding options like it's far beyond what and that's just one platform out of i mean there's not only those there's next door there's a few other platforms as well but it's far beyond what people can do and really all our company does is buy that traffic as efficiently we can and pass it on at a, a relatively thin margin, so enough to, you know, that we make a profit, but still way cheaper than what somebody could generate the leads themselves. And I only see that trend increasing. These platforms are getting more complex. 
um, because they're the, the types of different ways you can bid. Um, and, and, you know, I feel sorry for a new advertiser that, you know, a little guy that starts up a solar company, you know, he or she will go out and, you know, set up an AdWords account because they can do it on night on their computer. And unfortunately for them, they're going to buy all the traffic that we've excluded. Like, I don't know, our negative keyword list in AdWords is probably two or 300,000 phrases. But it's, you know, having bought, you know, 80 million clicks over the last 10 years, we've developed a very detailed view of what clicks are worth buying and what clicks aren't. But that's impossible for a little advertiser to do. So when they start, they get all the, you know, kids that are searching for to do a solar project clicking on their ads and paying for that. Um, whereas, you know, over time we've filtered out that sort of traffic. And so um, that's, you know, that's really what we There's nothing special about what we do, Joe, other than we don't cheat. And we've heavily invested in integrating our systems with those big platforms um, to, to buy traffic as efficiently as it can. But it sort of doesn't help in the long term because they're just going to, if we get more efficient at buying the traffic, they just push our cost per click up. So <laughs> Google are going to get their money. <laughs> like, um, yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, that will continue whilst there's more than one of us that wants that traffic and that will continue while there's margin in the solar industry. And despite the fact that solar companies, win, you know, are always whinging about the cost of generating customer acquisition costs, because they are high, because they're driven by these monopoly platforms, the what they charge for traffic. Um, and so I get it. it, it it's frustrating. Um, but the truth is there's still a lot of margin in solar jobs like in you know in our in markets that are sort of uh, you know lower i tend to split the states up more into how much power costs in the state so in states where power is relatively cheap um you know you can probably generate working with solar reviews you can probably generate you know jobs at a cost per acquisition you know, if you're selling, it depends a lot on your cost that you sell at. Like, if you're going to still be selling at four, four fifty a watt, then you're going to have a cost of acquisition of three or four thousand bucks a job because you're only going to convert two percent. You're going to convert one in fifty. If you're selling at two eighty, two fifty, two eighty a watt in Florida or Texas or something, then you are going to convert five or six percent, and you will have a cost per acquisition of probably around two thousand bucks. Um, but you know that would be on a that would be on a, a ten kilowatt system, and there'd still be fifteen grand margin in that system. So everybody whinges about, and I whinge more than anyone, I guess, about Google and that Facebook pushing their constantly pushing their costs up. And like when I look back to two thousand and sixteen, Joe, we're paying four times a click than what we were paying for, like what we used to pay Google for a click back then. Um, you know, like it, it, it's it's around ten bucks a click now. It was like two fifty a click back then. Um, so, you know, but the reason that goes up is because there's margin in solar. If there wasn't margin in solar, no one would buy my leads. I would drop my bids, and then you know the 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 price of traffic would fall. Um, but you know, it's good business. To acquire, like the guys that are selling it, you know, in Texas or something at four bucks a watt, 
you know, there's 15, 10 grand system, there's 20 grand margin in a job. So if it costs them four or $5,000 to acquire a job, that's still good business. You're handing over, you know, a dollar and getting five back. You just got to wait six months to turn it around to sell the job and collect the money. But, it, you know, that's like a money tree. That, that's that's pretty good. Um, you know, and if you're selling at 250, 280, you're probably getting the cost of acquisition below 2000. And but you know, there's still probably eight ten thousand dollars margin. So, we, we tend to work on the principle that you need to be generating about five to six x what you spend with us, so in gross margin, which would probably equate to about 10, uh, 10 to 12 x in sales. Um, and, and that's the sort of you know, the 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 rule we, we sort of work on, but um. And look, the smart guys, it's funny, like, you know, there's probably 20 or 30 of our customers now whose companies would be worth more than $100 million. Like, we've had a couple, we've had one of our customers that started off probably seven or eight years ago buying 100 bucks a day worth of leads sell for over $800 million. Um, we've had another one I know of just off the top of my head, um, Ben's company sold for $165 million. Um, it's... And there's lots, there's not lots, I wouldn't say there's lots in our client base, there's, there's, but there's certainly dozens that would be, you know, above the sort of 50 odd million dollar in valuation, probably more like 100 or so. Um, and really, they're the people that can concentrate on the numbers. The large reason people fail, like, because you'd, you'd logically ask yourself, Joe, if it's true that somebody can spend a dollar with a good lead generation company and they can generate $5 of gross margin, why isn't every company, you know, every solar company that's ever bought leads from solar reviews worth $100 million? And, and there's one simple reason. That starting off buying leads is super difficult because... Do you know how long, do you know how we did a study about two years ago on when a lead came into our site and then we got one of our clients that shares their conversion data back with us. We actually got the dates on which all their conversions happened over the next year. Do you know what the average time was between a lead and a, a solar conversion? Somebody actually signing a contract? I'll venture a guess. I'm going to say five weeks. No, it was six months. That's what people don't get. They start off buying. So everybody has a model built on this one called close fallacy. And it, and it's a fallacy, but they still think, I, I, like I've talked to the owner of that company who's the data showed that they, on average, were taking six months because conversions happen off a batch of leads over two years. They bake out over two years, but everybody only considers the first sales call or the first in-home appointment. It's either one close or dead. But the truth is, as the American consumer gets smarter, they're less likely to be pressured by anybody in their home convincing them they have to do something today, which is the old way that high-pressure in-home sales happen. You know, it's all about, I'll get right. the manager on the phone, I'll get your discount, you need to sign today, blah, 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 blah. Most people are like, no, I'm going to think about it. This is a big discretionary purchase that I don't have to make. I have a utility grid that works. I don't have to buy this today. Um, most consumers are smarter than that. And so, but the problem is when you start off in lead buying, 
When you're in your second year of lead buying, let's say it's January 2024, you're going to get a conversion. Yes, you're going to get a few conversions from the leads you buy in January 24, but you're going to get a conversion from October 23, a conversion from June 23, a conversion from March 23, and maybe one from you know March 22. And so in that month, you're going to say, well, I got eight conversions. This is a good month. You know, I'm doing well. In lead one, in in month one, when you're a lead buyer, you're only going to get the conversions from that month. And everybody thinks, well, all my conversions are going to come. They're not. They're going to come month two, month three, month four. So by the time you're about six months in, you're starting to get an idea of what lead buying will do for you and how it will look on a month-to-month -month basis. But your first months are terrible, even with a good source. I mean, even with a good source, like we're talking, as I said before, our very best clients will convert 10% to leads, but that's rare. And usually when they're in a small market with not a lot of competition and they're just a really good local installer, but that's pretty rare. You know, most of the mass market dudes, it's more around five or 6%. So we're only talking about one in 20 leads, even honest leads that are generated from, you know, a good quality call to honest call to action in high intent traffic with Google AdWords where we've paid them a fortune, paid them 10 bucks a click um, to get that. And then, you know, only one in 10, one in 15 people actually fill out the form and then only half of them pass QA. So it's even with those, only one in 15 or so are going to buy off you. And, and it's that emotional pain in the first three months that kills people like they just can't do it like they just but we've sort of got to a stage now joe where we say to people look after a month you're going to hate me after two or three months you'll probably hate me a little less you know after six months i'm going to be your best friend and, and that's the nature of lead buying um but that's a really hard education um and but at least we bother to do it like most people would just lie to them and say, yeah, you're going to sell 20% of these in a month. And it's like, well, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah, Andy, I mean, the, the reality is, I mean, the, the way that you do things and, and the way that we do things here at Solar Surge is very different than the way that the industry as a whole does things in solar. You know, I, I know a lot of solar sales professionals, you know, they, they believe that if they don't sell the homeowner on that initial first visit, they, they'll never follow up. They say there's no point following up. If they didn't buy today, they're not going to buy from me in the future because they know they're overcharging. They know it's a, it's a very low information, high pressure sales pitch. And if the, if the homeowner starts doing some research, chances are they're going to find my YouTube channel. They're going to find your, 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 your channel or your website, and they're actually going to get some education. And the next time they sit down with the salesperson, they're going to know what a fair price is. They're going to know what good equipment is. And, and they're not going to, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to call that, that cheap salesman back. And I think it's, it, it is a total mindset shift going from this high pressure, low information sales to what, what I, I really like what you do is, is high information. So you're, you're right. You, you invest in purchasing high intent traffic, as you said, but then once you have that traffic, you provide value and information. Like for example, just myself, I was doing research for a YouTube video a couple of days ago about the net, the net metering rule change that's about to take effect in North Carolina. North Carolina is one of the markets where we, we sell. 
Well, I, I found the article on your website explaining exactly how the rule change, you know, what, what the details of the rule change are. And that's just an example of education-based selling, if, if you want to call it selling. But really what you're doing is you're providing education to people that are seeking that information. And then it's like you give them an option. Okay, well, by the way, if you'd like to get a quote on an installation in your area, just click the button, fill out the form and then we can get you connected. But it's, it's high intent traffic and, and you've delivered some value to that traffic before you, you then pass their information to an installer. So in other words, there's already some trust there in the relationship. Yeah, look, business shouldn't be a con. And unfortunately, you know, t too many people like, I often say to people, Joe, that when the solar industry started, it, it attracted both the best and the worst of people. It attracted people um, that know they have to make a living and that they have to feed their families, but are really attracted to the idea that they can make a living whilst doing something which is good for the planet and good for the world. So it attracted those people, and you know, you and I would probably like to think we're in the, in that group of people. Um, but it also attracted the dodgiest people. The used car, high pressure in home, home improvement salesman type people that just thought, ah, oh, liberal people are going to be soft and they're going to be easy to con. Um, and therefore, I'm going to go into the solar industry and make heaps of money and I'm going to sign up a heap of jobs and then close down three years later before I and not answer the phone for the next 22 years when people have issues. Um, so, you know, it, it really did attract the best and the worst people. And really one one of the things i hope solo reviews has contributed generally to in the industry is making it harder for the dodgy people to be in the industry like by sharing information and the truth is you don't have a business unless your underlying product is good for the people you sell it to and that might be you know a, a sports car might be good because you know people enjoy driving it on a weekend it's fun and that's a, not all benefits have to be economic, but it, but in solar, I guess there's two benefits. There's the there's the economic and the environmental. But most people, you know, you know, have you know limited income and and almost unlimited wants in terms of the, their family finances. And so, economics is a really really important thing. But in most parts of the country, or in many parts of the country. You know, the economics of solar are really good. So you don't have to con people. Like, you don't have to make monopoly profits off every job you do. Just charge a fair price, a fair margin, charge the same price to everybody and do a good job. And you'll end up, you know, and this is the other thing that I think lead buyers forget about. If you do a good job and you after a while you don't have to like my Australian company wouldn't even have to buy fins leads anymore they wouldn't have had to probably for the last three or four years and we actually have had some really successful companies of ours um, buy leads for the first few years but then get to a point where they're so big and so busy that they're like well Andy thanks man but I can't answer all the inbound calls I've got from referrals now and I don't have the install crews to do them. So there's really no point in me buying leads anymore. And that's a sensible argument. I can't argue with that. If they can't get any more install crews or have no interest in employing more in install crews because they don't want the hassle of managing more people, that's, 
I often say to people, that's the best reason in the world not to buy leads off me, <laughs> like, um, where your referrals, and that's the other thing you really need to price into um, your economics of buying solar leads, like particularly when you started that first two or three years as I had, and certainly the first three to six months are very difficult. Um because you see a lot of money going out the door. You see a lot of leads where you paid a hundred bucks. You ring up someone, they say, oh, no, I found out some information. Now I'm not interested. I thought this was the case and it turns out it's not. So I'm not interested. And that is pretty emotionally hard when you've just paid a hundred bucks for that person's number and then they're rude to you. And then you pick up again. <laughs> Same thing happens on the next lead. Um, I get that. Um, and, and that's why... In many ways, it's extra hard for owner-operators, really small people that actually do those calls themselves because that's emotionally more difficult. When when you've sort of got a salesperson or a sales team, you know, or appointment setters or whatever that do that calling for you, at least it's less emotional. You can just look at the figures on a monthly basis. Um, but, it, but it is hard. Sure, sure. Now, Andy, one of the things that's changed a lot in the last few years, I know you've been doing this again for, you know, even longer, longer than I have, but um, one of the things that's really changed the solar game is the introduction of financing and the ability of, of you know, virtually anybody that can pass a credit check to be able to afford the purchase of the solar power system. But how, how has that changed how solar is marketed or how, how solar should be marketed now that financing and debt is part of the equation? Look, I don't think it's a bad thing at all that using debt, um, and, and to be honest, I think it's only going to be an increasing trend. Um, I don't think the finance industry in America yet truly understands how secure solar receivables are. And I'm not sure if this my logic holds true here, Joe, or not, but my in solar wholesalers like in Australia, right? Let's say we've been going for a long time now, and I don't know how many houses we've done. Maybe somewhere twenty to thirty thousand, I would guess, someone in in that range. Um, I can only ever remember having, and so there's no, we don't do financing, we don't have a finance provider's license. We're just all cash sales in Australia, but solar's a lot cheaper here. Because uh, we don't have any of the permitting hassles that you have um, that we have in America. Um, but I've out of those twenty or thirty homes, twenty or thirty thousand homes. Do you know we've only ever had to take one person to court to get paid, and that was a crazy lady who's now in jail for hitting a city worker with a shovel. Like <laughs> that's the only. <laughs> <laughs> that's the out of whatever 20s to something thousand clients that's we've only ever had one bad debt like solar solar receivables are super secure the reason being is that solar doesn't offer instant gratification like other things do when you buy a ferrari or buy a fancy new car or you know a fancy new hot tub or something it's about instant gratification by nature, the people that go solar are people that are financially conservative and concerned about the future. Like, they're not buying it for some short-term 
game. Um, and in fact, one thing I always find interesting, um, I often find in Utah with the Mormon population there that there's a very high level of financial literacy amongst people. If you talk to people, they're financially like quite well educated, just the average rank and file person you'll, you'll meet in Utah. Um, and their solar adoption rates are super high, even though they're, um, they're, there's no particularly strong state incentives there and their electricity price is relatively low. Like, I don't know what it would be now. It might be used to be like 11 cents, but it might be like 13 or 14 cents now. Um, so power's not expensive, um, but people are well financially educated. And so um, that's why I think solar receivables are so secure. And I think more and more, as we get more and more data, you know, they'll see that default rates, I think, are very low. And so I think there'll be more and more better financing options. What's happened in the last few months, though, is the solar financing industry has sort of blown up a little bit. Um, and I shouldn't laugh because I know that that's been incredibly disruptive to a lot of people and a lot of our clients, actually. Um, I laugh because I own some shares in one of the solar financing companies and that hasn't gone so well for us in the last six months. Um, but um, we, um, what happened um, is because it was a bit of an arms race, not only amongst solar installers to get market share, but also amongst solar financing companies. So you had, you know, companies like Goodleap, um, Mosaic, uh, who are owned by Warburg Pincus, uh, Sunlight Financial, um, you know, you know, Dividend has a loan platform. I think Palmetto probably does too. There's, there's like quite a few. Because there was a bit of an arms race, they actually offered dealers very competitive terms. And one of the things they offered, or two of the things they offered, um, was they would pay dealers part of the the value of a job before it was installed. Uh, which dealers had used to finance the cash flow of their business to buy the equipment to then install it. Um, but these finance companies got caught because they were offering people a rate that they could then go um, and offer to their clients. But they were guaranteeing to hold that rate for a period of time. So obviously last year, you know, it's unprecedented. It precedented the, I, don't, I don't think I said that word right. Um, I won't try again because I'm pretty sure I'll get it wrong again. But it's it hasn't happened often <laughs> that the Fed's raised rates at, what, nine out of 11 meetings or it might have even been 10 in a row or something like this. But so they, let's say in March last year, they offered, you know, let's say Sunlight offered a dealer a loan with a 15% dealer fee on it. And it was, let's say, a 2.99% 20-year loan or something like that. Might have been normal back then. They gave that dealer a certain number of months. So if that client they went and offered to took three months to sign up, which they often do, they held that rate. But the problem is in that period, the Fed funds rate went up and all of a sudden that loan wasn't worth a 2.99% 20-year loan. Let's say it was securing a $30,000 system. 
that all of a sudden couldn't be sold into the wholesale market at $30,000 anymore. That was maybe only worth $20,000. And so what's happened is that nearly, very nearly wiped most of the solar financing companies out because they had a whole heap of loans. And so basically it's made them do two things. It's made them turn around. Um, it's made them turn around and... Uh, change the terms of which they'll deal with dealers. So in, in two very material ways. One of, one of those ways is that it, they have, um, like, well, or three very material ways, actually. Um, I've probably missed out the biggest one. Um, one is their dealer fees have gone up a lot um, because they now realise that it's not, a fait accompli that you can sell solar loans and then sell them at 100% of the face value of those loans uh, because interest rates, financial markets and interest rates and wholesale interest markets can change and deteriorate. Uh, so their dealer fees have gone up a lot, which is obviously making solar more expensive for consumers that, that need to finance it. But the two other material things is they're no longer prepared to provide um, to hold a financing quote for as long. And look, I think that's a better thing because I don't think that's reality. Like it won't matter so much when we plateau. And if you believe what people are saying that we're basically going to plateau, some people think there might be a couple of 25 basis point, um, uh, even interest rates reduction in the third or fourth quarter this year. I think probably not. I think we're probably going to plateau with interest rates about here for 12, 18 months. So it should be better conditions for solar finance companies to try and operate in. But one thing they have done is they've reduced the amount of time they'll hold a quote. But the other material thing they've done is they'll no longer typically pay a percentage of the job out to the installer till it's installed. Um, so that's putting real pressure on... Um, on dealers, on, on our clients effectively. That's making it harder. So to, to be honest, you know, it's a bit of a double whammy for our clients at the moment because you've got a consumer that's more nervous and less likely to sign off. So what we have seen in the last few months is conversion rates, lead volumes are down. Um, we've increased our bids a lot to Google and Facebook to try and keep them close to 2022 volumes for our clients but we haven't quite been able to do that so lead volumes are down a little bit unfortunately but the sign-off time between lead and sign-off is probably extended and and so the the conversion rate is probably down a little bit so it is tough times out there in the residential solar industry for people um not you know the good ones will be fine the bad ones like any period where things operating conditions get more difficult the good ones are still going to survive but the bad ones will probably get cleaned out and probably won't um the the less strong less efficient companies so um but yeah it, 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 um solar financing is very very important um and you know some of the stuff in the ira act I think unfairly favoured leasing over loans. 
Um, I don't think there's any justification for that other than it was the strength of the lobbyists for companies that have leases sorted out because I don't know, do you know about the financing for leases and how that works? So we, we don't do a lot of leases here at Solar Surge, although in light of the new reality, because as you said, interest rates are up, dealer fees are way up in terms of, you know, loan origination fees are probably another way to, to, to term it. Yeah. Um, so in other words, the, the cost of financing a solar system purchase is much higher than it has been yeah. ever since we've offered financing. So I think the, the, the lease option may be a more attractive option yeah. in this case, especially especially if battery storage can now be included. Yeah. Because in the past, it was very difficult to include the cost of a battery into yeah. a lease. Now, many leasing programs are not only allowing batteries, many of them are requiring you to have batteries yeah. if you're in California. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's a new development as well. But Andy, I, I actually need to go back and ask you more about something that you touched on earlier, because, you know, right now the big news in the American financial, uh, American financial community is, is bank failures. And, you know, spe specifically our small yeah, regional it. banks. I had to with SVP Bank. <laughs> <laughs> and um, fortunately, we didn't have all of our company's money in there, but we had a chunk of it. And um, so I was a bit sad there for a weekend. But then on the Sunday when they came out and said the the, the government would guarantee my deposits, I was a little happier. But um, yeah, it, it, um, it seemed pretty real there for a while. Well, well one of the things that, that caught my attention is you mentioned that uh, you know, the way that solar finance works, there can be a significant lag between when a, a, a solar loan is approved for a project and when that project actually completes and the loan is funded and the, the loan is, is, is secured or securitized. Yeah. So, and it could be eight months. I know, I know for many of the lenders we work with, you, you mentioned a few of the names. It's not uncommon to get a credit approval for a homeowner then that homeowner may have 60 days to decide whether they want to take the loan offer or yeah. not. Then if they take the loan offer, then the installer has up to six months to complete the project mm -hmm. before the loan is actually closed out and securitized. Yeah. So you could have a, an eight an eight or even nine month gap mm -hmm. between when the initial terms of the financing and the initial interest rate is offered until when the loan is fully funded and closed out. And as you said, interest rates as rising as fast as they have in the past year, it's put a lot of solar finance companies in a similar position to some of these banks where they, 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 they bought assets um, or they, they took on assets onto their balance sheet based on certain market assumptions about interest rates and the saleability of those bonds or of those loans. Mm just to find out that six months down the road, these these bonds are not as saleable as, as they thought they would mm. be. Uh, does this mean that we're likely to see some solar finance companies fail in the same fashion or similar fashion that, as we've seen some of the regional banks fail? Um, well, I, if I, you have to look at them individually. Um, I imagine Mosaic are probably one of the biggest ones. Um, they're owned by Warburg Pincus, which is one of the biggest private equity firms in the world. Um, Warburg are a very smart company um, and have very, very, very deep pockets. I suspect they won't fail. Um, Sunlight Financial is another one. Um, they were really sort of out there... Um, uh, 
sort of fairly aggressively in the market, taking a lot of market share and doing a reasonable amount of business. Probably not as much as Mosaic, although um, you might have a better insight, Joe, on that than than I would because I don't sort of keep track of their com relatively competitive offerings, which one's more competitive at the time. Um, but I think they have a very skinny balance sheet. They lost a lot of money last year. They were selling to that guy. I told the boys we're not allowed to sell him leads. I can't remember his name. I think you're talking about Power Home Solar. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. They they'd forwarded. They hadn't really done anything wrong. They just forwarded a heap of money to that guy to fund effectively the spin up of his business because they're writing a, they, that company was writing a lot of loans um for them but they they were in a an example of a company that is let me just say it it's very american in the way they operated compared to how we operate in australia um it you know the the high pressure the hype the you know just um so that sort of got them into trouble a little bit um but I think that was only a one-off thing. And I don't think what they did there was really that bad. Like they just forwarded, you know, working capital to a company that was writing a lot of their business. Um, if that company was a good company and they perhaps didn't have the skills to see the difference between a good solar installer and a bad solar installer, um, you know, probably not having actually been on the tools and actually run install crews and knowing what that takes and what sort of people you need involved in that sort of company. Um, you know, uh, the, you know that normally just would have been a $30 million write-off and their balance sheet could have handled that. But I think the fact that that happened at the same time as um, like um, the fact that that happened at the same time as you know we got nine interest rate rises in a month so you know the whole thing you just talked about there joe about that time lag that doesn't hurt when interest rates are constant over that period of time or even if interest rates fall they can you know a financier could make a windfall gain because if you know if if wholesale the fed funds rate was to fall back to two percent now and they'd written a, a whole heap of loans you know, they'd be worth more than the face value of those loans. So they could actually make a windfall profit on, on securitizing those loans if interest rates go the other way. But the fact that they rose so sharply, um, you know, you know, is almost unprecedented in history. Um, my gut feeling, and I don't know the executives that run Sunlight, but my gut feeling is they're actually not, bad quality executives and that they probably actually have a relatively smart management team, they probably worked out that the amount of value they were getting off the loans that that company was writing was worth advancing them $30 million. And that might have been, even though they went broke, they might have written them $30 million worth of margin in loans before they went broke. I don't know. Um, so, but that, that fund for a small independent listed company like those that are, you know, really probably don't have any massive heavy hitter behind them in terms of their balance sheet. Um, 
you know, certainly not like a Warburg Pincus or someone like that. Um, I feel like that, you know, that was just bad luck. And, and I think they could still trade out of it. Like, um, but I, I certainly don't say that with great certainty because I don't know. It, it, certainly they're in, you know, very difficult times. Um, I did read something from them, maybe one of their quarter releases or something where, um, they they sort of had re, you know reduced operating costs and headcount and things a bit to sort of hunker down and make it through a very difficult time. But look, I think if they can make it through the next six months, they'll be fine. But the next six, six months will be difficult. Um, there is some other movement in other because their the dealer fees on those those loans. Uh, do you still use do you use either of those companies? To finance we do we we actually use all all four of the companies you mentioned dividend good leap mosaic and sunlight financial so through our installer network we have access to all of those yeah. all of those lenders yeah. um what we're seeing we're seeing that dealer fees uh, are rising across the board interest rates are rising and dealer yeah. fees are rising yes. as well yeah yeah what um what's the best option you have on your table in terms of what dealer fee and and the loan um, is that something you're allowed to disclose or is that something that you're not allowed to disclose? Well, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll just share this, you know, I, I, again, we work with all of those, those top four lenders that you mentioned in general, what I'm seeing is that dividend has the most competitive rates and fees for qualified borrowers. Yeah. Now, not, not all borrowers will qualify. And, and as you alluded to, the credit requirements are getting tighter the advancements, you know, the advancements to the installers are going yeah. away. Um, so we'll, we'll see. But um, from what I've seen, I think I think dividend has a slight advantage over yeah. the other three yeah. in terms of uh, in terms of rates and yeah. fees. Joe, I do know of another major player moving into this market. Although I think my knowledge there is, I think I'm privy to information which is confidential. Um, so I won't share it with you publicly, but I'll circle back there. There may be substantial change and substantially better product offered to the solar finance market shortly. And it's around this theme of mine that solar receivables are much more secure than what the finance industry are giving them credit. Crazy crazy volatile interest rates we've had in the last, you know, nine months. That's really just a one-off, that is. But there, there's this fundamental look-through on a 10-year basis that solar receivables are super secure, and we've been lobbying, you know, very large organisations to see that and offer better product to the market. Um, I believe that is happening now. I just don't think that is widely known. But let me... Let me just double check with what I can say, because <laughs> I'm not. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Well, whenever, whenever you have any news, we, we'd be happy to cover that yeah. as well. But uh, no, certainly understand about yeah. that. I guess real quick, while we do have a few minutes left, is there anything else that that the audience should know about either about how you do business, about solar market conditions in general, um, or about the future, you know, future plans and where you'd like to take your company going forward? Well, our company. Um... You know, I think 
you know, we'll continue to drill down into the solar industry. Um, I, I, I think we'll sort of stay roughly doing what we're doing. I don't think we will take a, I don't think we'll sort of move downstream and start selling jobs or anything. Like it's not, um, like I'm sort of happy for our clients to do that. And, you know, I've been in a long time now. I've been in business now, you know, as an independent for the 25 years. And so to an extent I'm, you know, it's a younger man's game to take on, you know, more challenges. Um, we are sort of, I, I guess the mission I'm more interested in at the moment for my company, and it's not really relevant to solar listeners so much, is that I dislike the way the lead generation industry works in America, period, um, across all industries. And so I would like to change that. And so we've um, we've bought another website called fixer.com, which is a home improvement website. Um, and we we now have a small roofing leads business, basically using the same model as solar reviews. We just don't cheat. We let the consumer choose how many quotes we are. We only sell it to that many people. If we don't have any buyers, we don't sell it to anyone. We don't sell our leads off to affiliate networks so people get spammed. So same, same basically value equation. Um, and so I'm probably more excited about that than actually what I am about trying to drill down and sell jobs or anything like that. Um, I have thought about that because obviously that's my background, but it's hard to do that at scale. And also, you know, a lot of our clients now have become friends, you know, like, and the idea of going and competing with them is the same, I guess, as the idea of competing with Finn in, the, Finn in Australia to do solar leads. I just, it doesn't really excite me um, much. Um, we have some crazy investments, like we own part of the French Yellow Pages. Um, you know, a whole weird aside. Um, so I, I, I think I'll just follow what feels light and breezy um, and what feels right. And what we're doing, I think, with Solar Reviews is very sustainable. I think we'll be there doing it in 10 years' time. I think the solar industry in America, um, I'm really excited. I know batteries were more, you know, 20, 21, 22s sort of story, whereas finance is probably, um, I think the two big stories in solar for 23, 24 will be finance and electric prices, utility price inflation. Um, because power prices will go up more than they have historically because we all know now that we need to move if we want the planet to stay roughly like it is which i think it's a given that most people do um then we know we have to limit climate change to below two percent um and to do that we need renewables you know and whether they be you know nuclear wind wave hydro or solar um, but solar has no moving parts, so it, it's less. There's less engineering complexity with solar. You know, wind turbines. If you don't service the bearings and the braking systems, they'll overheat and they'll explode. Um, actually, one of our installers had one in his farm and it put shrapnel all through his shed. Um, um, so 
the advantage of solar is it has no moving parts and so the engineering requirements to deploy it. We have got solar support in America a little bit wrong. Um, it should have been, it shouldn't be a tax credit like it is. It should be because that doesn't encourage um, people to reduce costs. In fact, it encourages finance systems to people to operate at a higher uh, cost business model. Um, it should be on a, you know, the subsidy should be on a cost per watt basis and that would drive um, prices down in the industry. But that's just something the government's got a little bit wrong. The other thing we've probably got wrong is there's been probably too much support for rooftop deployment and not enough support, like financial support for the accompanying energy storage deployment. Um, so... Really, we all know we need to go to renewables, but but they need to be made baseload. And and to be made baseload reliable, people need power when they need power, not when the sun's shining. And so to be reliable, they need to be paired with energy storage. And, and a big, I think, story in the industry, which needs to be told far more, which the industry hasn't been good at telling to date, is whilst putting you know, five kilowatts of panels on a roof is very inefficient compared to putting, you know, 100 megawatts in a field and then running one wire into a substation. Um, that's much more efficient way to deploy panels. However, the opposite is true when it comes to battery storage. Battery storage is just as efficient to deploy in a home as what it is, in fact, probably more efficient to deploy in the nodes, the homes, the, the last mile of a network, than what it is to deploy out next to a big solar station. Because you've, if you employ the battery storage out there, you've still got to build out that network to cope with the peak, the instant of peak power. You know, six o'clock at night, everybody comes home You've got to build out that network to deal with the the very the, the the millisecond of absolute peak demand on that network. When you put batteries out in the nodes, you reduce what that peak um, you know demand is, the instantaneous um, load is on that network. And the way you know substations work, if you have a say substation that's worth you know that you know can you know take a million amps. Uh, you know, 10,000 volts or whatever, if it goes to a million and one amps, it's got a trip. It's the way it protects itself from short-circuiting. Like, that's just the way it works. That whole substation has to be rebuilt. Like, And what we've got happening now with electric cars coming in, we're going to, people are going to get home. They're not just going to turn their HVAC on. They're going to plug their electric car in as well. So we're actually going to increase the peak draw on the network and we've got two choices either way we spend money as a country we either spend i think in california you know they, 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 they've talked about 30 billion dollars of capex needing to be spent on the market if everybody was going to come home and plug their electric car in because that that demand's all going to come through you know between five and seven o'clock at night in in for a very short peak of time but a massive burst putting you could put, you could give every homeowner in California, I don't know what the mass is, five grand to put a battery in their home for the same costs. 
Like, and then you don't need to spend that money on upgrading the network. So whilst the rooftop solar was not necessarily efficient, and this is what the PUC and the people that are against solar have pointed out, that, you know, rooftop solar as a means of deploying so many megawatts of generation capacity is inefficient. And yes, it is. But the opposite is true for batteries. It's actually very efficient. And we actually built the first, here in South Australia where I live, we actually built the first, the you know that 90 megawatt Tesla battery that they built it in South Australia? The, it was the biggest, I'm not sure if it still is, I don't think it is, but at the time it was the biggest um, battery in the world. Really all it was was a thousand Tesla Powerwalls like, wired together. Like, there's no, it's not as though a hundred megawatt battery is any more efficient, you know, you're just making, you know, whatever the maths is, 10,000 power walls. That's all you're really making. It's not as though there's any real economies of scale like there is for putting massive farms of solar panels in the desert. There's massive economies of scale there. But um, so, you know, I hope we don't forget about the importance of batteries because that's when... Um, you know, that's when we can look at the most diehard anti-solar sort of people and say, well, no, we are a genuine standalone technology. We, we have the generation and the storage. We are baseload now. We, we take care of ourselves. Um, and, and like, that's what we need to do. Um, and as a society, we need to invest in you know, in that, because, you know, then we would have, you know, solved the challenge of this century. And the challenge of this century will be surviving the end of the century and still being able to live roughly like we do now. Yeah. Well, Andy, I'm afraid we're going to have to end it there just because of time, but uh, a lot of great insights in the interview here. I can't wait to get the edited version of this video up. I think there's a ton of great and important information uh, and I, I hope that we have you on the podcast again sometime in the near future uh, as as we watch all of this all of this play out. Uh, so, folks, again, th this has been an interview with Andy Sendy, uh, the CEO and owner of Solar Reviews, uh, SolarEstimate.org, uh, and a number of other media properties as well. Uh, solar industry veteran and somebody that knows how to do things the right way on the marketing side, and is just a great source of information and a great educator out there. Uh, particularly for American homeowners, uh, even though he's again joining us from sunny Adelaide, Australia. So, Andy, thanks again for spending your morning with us and uh, enjoy the beach. And we, we hope to have you again on Thank soon. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. I've enjoyed it. Thank you.